Good morning and welcome to the Dr. Patricia Hobbs main stage. My name is Natalie Tucker Farrell, Public Information Officer with Harnett County Schools. This morning, I am joined by a very um, well-versed panel to discuss mental health, social justice, and equality and equity in K-12 environments. This morning, I'm gonna go around and have our panelists introduce themselves and give us a little background about themselves. I'm gonna start with Ms. Glass. Good morning, and thank you so much for having me. It is indeed an honor and a privilege to be with you all. Um, again, my name is Mitzi Glass. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, and I am a clinical care supervisor at Children's Hospital of the King's Daughters in Norfolk, Virginia. So I bring a unique, but maybe not so unique perspective to the, um, to the conversation. So again, thank you so very much uh, for having me. Thank you for joining us. Dr. Helms Pickett. Good morning. Thank you as well for the invitation. My name is Stephanie Helms Pickett and I use she, her pronouns. I serve as the Associate Vice Provost for Inclusive Excellence and Strategic Practice at North Carolina State University. And I hope to bring a lens of the importance of equity and social justice in K-12 so that they can be better prepared for the higher education environment. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Dr. Martinez, are you with us? Yeah, hey. hey. Good morning, everybody. Nice to see you all. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm Robert Martinez. I'm a professor at, well, assistant professor at UNC Chapel Hill in the School of Education, particularly in the school counseling program and school psych uh, programs. Um, yeah, nice to see you and uh, great to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And Dr. Peters. <laughs> well, listen, it's so good to be with you all this morning and certainly honored to be a part of this panel uh, after the keynote this morning. Um, I continue to try to provide quality services to educators who are doing the heavy lifting uh, across this country and now internationally as my role as president of ILA uh, doing the global uh, work. And then partnering with uh, former National Principal of the Year who will introduce himself next, Mark Wilson here in Georgia. We uh, both have South Carolina roots, but we are in Georgia uh, doing great work now. And uh, it's glass. I worked in Norfolk public schools before. So when I hear um, you mention that, it, it brings back so many wonderful memories uh, on the training ground in Norfolk public schools. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Um, and last, Dr. Wilson. Thanks, Natalie. Good morning, everyone. And it's a pleasure and a privilege to be with all of you. And uh, so I'm a teacher. Uh, the short version on me is I uh, was a teacher and a coach and a principal. And now I teach and coach principals um, across the U.S. and beyond. Um, I've been uh, blessed with the opportunity to serve lots of school systems across the U.S. And um, Stephen Peters and I have been friends for a number of years in our um, paths were brought together again um, back in February when he moved to Georgia and said, hey, I don't know what's next for me. Uh, maybe God just wants me to play golf. And, and I told him, I said, I've been talking to him too, and I think he's got more in store for us. And then March 
13th happened and we found out a little bit of what was planned. And so um, just like all of you, we, we want to bring our, our resources together to really support children across our country and to help, uh, to help our, our educators who serve them. So I'm delighted to be a part of the panel today. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you. So we're going to move on now to equity and social justice. And that's actually great because it's right behind um, our keynote today. Um, Dr. Peters dropped some great gems and everyone's asking for the um, presentation. So I want to start off with asking each of you, we're gonna go around and it's just an open floor discussion. What are the responsibilities of educators in regards to issues of social justice? Dr. Wilson, Ms. Glass? Oh, okay. Um, so it's interesting because I'm a social worker by training. I'm also a, um, an adjunct professor at Norfolk State University. So I consider myself an educator, but as social workers, we should also be educators. We should be disseminating information all the time. So I feel like the, the responsibility is to do just that, to make sure that every life that we touch is learning something new, learning something different, um, based on not necessarily our experience, but willing to hear the experiences of our learners and walk with them in their path, um, join them in their journey, celebrate their journey. So I feel like the, the onus of responsibility for, for the profound capacity of our patients and our learners to change begins with us. So I feel like that's, that's our responsibility to really understand the unique responsibility um, and awesome charge, I would say, that we have to make sure that we are listening information um, and really, I love the word transformation. I tell my students that learning should be transformative. I say, everyone will pass my class, but I want you to be transformed by the information. And I feel like that's the same responsibility we should have to, for me, it would be my patients but I uh, just want you to know the same folks and children and families that you see as learners in your classroom, those are the same children and families that I'm seeing in my hospital. All right, anyone else? Speaking uh, of, oh, go ahead, Ms. Dr. Wilson, I'm sorry. Go please ahead. go ahead, Stephanie. Thank you, Dr. Wilson. I would suggest that we've got to start with our own personal narratives and do our own work. Uh, what is our own socialization? What are the judgments, uh, discriminations, biases that we hold before we can even talk about engaging in social justice work? So once we understand and unpack that, then we probably got to suspend it because it's probably inaccurate or it's limiting. And then we've got to be able to create room to hold on to someone else's and to do that through a place and a lens of cultural humility. So as opposed to immediately discounting what someone says or providing resistance to that, just sit with it and hold it. I, I've been really struck um, earlier in the summer, 
as people started to look at what was happening and look specifically at the murder of George Floyd and talk about, well, I didn't know that things were this bad. How do you not know? It's 2020. And so when you make statements like that, you've got to dig in. Why don't I know? Why haven't I been leaned in? Why am I missing what is happening around me? And then really spending some time in that self-education and not you know, Dr. Peters talked about that heavy lifting, not expecting that heavy lifting to be done by marginalized individuals, but doing that work yourself before you get on the front line of something. So really trying to do that self-education and then joining in and listening to those that have already been leading the charge and figuring out how you can plug in and then working on your inner circles. So we all have a group of people that we can influence before we start going down to the legislature and things. There are things that we can do within our faith communities, within our civic communities, within our own families. Uh, and those people have great touch points. So I, I would really want to start with our self work. Dr. Helms Pigott, that that's so well said. And, and I think that's the critical piece that um, when I'm working with leaders, I, I always um, suggest to them that leadership is an inside out operation, that before you begin to change the environment around you, you have to change the environment inside of you first, which means something that we all don't really always like, and that is genuine introspection that is only, as you said, um, it's supported when we are around other people who uh, who are willing to, to do the same for themselves. And I, Stephen and I, um, we, we hosted a series of social justice and uh, the school educator uh, sessions this summer. And we thought we might have a hundred educators from Georgia, but I got to find out um, how Zoom's pricing structure worked because we had a thousand people who came on. And we were very grateful, um, but also back into the same, the same question, Natalie, is where do we begin? And one of the things that we did was we offered an opportunity for, for those who were interested that we would match them up in a group of, of six educators from around the country and offer them just an introduction for them to create that space to share with each other. Because um, as, as, I think one of our challenges is to those people who are just discovering what they should have discovered a long time ago for, for us to be full of grace with them as well, because this isn't the time to, to, to only allow the people who've been enlightened for a long time. We, we want to change, we want to change things. And the, the, the last thing I'll mention is to me, this is a fundamental thing for us as educators, because one thing that we do every day, Natalie, all across the United States, is our children recite the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. And at the end of the Pledge of Allegiance, it really clearly says liberty and justice for all. I think as educators, we should not we, we should not be party to just the recital of words without seeing um, how they live in our own schools. Because we're, when we go past ourselves, Stephanie, I think we have to start looking at our own schools and where are the injustices in our schools? Um, yeah, and so I, I think there's so much, 
I think this is our work, Natalie. It's not a part of our work. Our, our work is, is to make sure that pledge we say every day is for real and not just for show. Talking about Dr. Peters, did you have something to share or? Well, I was waiting for Dr. Martinez and I wanted to hear from him and then I'll, I'll come. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, just to piggyback on everybody, we think about that individual approach, right? And thinking about what we can do for ourselves, our own self-awareness, our own orientation about how we practice our own values, morals, and beliefs. And so then once we we figure out our blind or our blind spots, right? Because that's what we're trying to do is figure out what are our blind spots and how do we open up our lens further so that we can really start looking at these um, the programming, the way we educate, the way we counsel our kids, um, and do we mass it in this one big bubble, right? And it, is it more of a concentric way of putting all these pieces together to fit this, this normative narrative, or do we use these intercentric shapes to start moving them out and really identifying what are the unique values and experiences of our communities and what can we do so that we can have this transdisciplinary approach so that we can actually start moving the needle to serve our students so that when we see injustice, inequality, we see you know, uh, programming that's just kind of one all fits all. And I go back to our to the school counseling model, which is this ask the national model, which tends to do that. We think about these comprehensive way of programming. That means we just circled everybody in the bubble, right? So how do we deconstruct that in a purposeful way so that we can understand, okay, I understand why I'm doing this because I have these morals, values, and beliefs about doing something because this is how I was trained to deconstructing it a bit to re structuring it so that it can be um, uh, so that you know we start thinking about these beautiful experiential pieces of information that youth and others bring into the schoolhouse as well as the community so th these funds of knowledge uh, this funds of knowledge right I'm getting to funds of knowledge and the way kids protect themselves the way that they promote their their experiences how, what are these cultural collisions and barriers that are out there that can actually impede academic performance, which we talked about a little bit, but also social emotional wellness. So those are some of the things that once we move beyond us, how do we move forward so that we become these systems of change that are promoted, protective and culturally informed um, in a way that, that, that is empowering right, and not from a deficit lens. So I'll stop there. Yeah, so I'm, I knew there was a reason I wanted you to go before us, because they, these are also powerful. And I, I just wanna say that we can't miss this opportunity. Uh, these are opportunities for us to redeem ourselves. And, and more importantly, allow others an opportunity to redeem themselves. You know, I think, um, about my partnership with Mark Wilson. And um, 2008, I was asked to fly to DC to deliver the keynote address for Metropolitan Insurance Company was sponsoring the National Principal of the Year. 
So they had everybody, uh, all the state winners fly to DC and I delivered the keynote. That was the day I met Mark. He won the National Principal of the Year um, award and rightfully so. You see how humble he is. He just says, you asked him to introduce himself. He says, well, I'm a teacher. You know, it's like not I'm the former National Principal of the Year, I'm a teacher. And so when we redeem ourselves, we have to form alliances and partnerships. And so my partnership with Mark, uh, I'm an African-American male, he's a white male. We can do more work around this country together in unison around the subject of social justice and equity than I can do as an African-American male by some who would say, man, he's just an angry black man. Well, now I got a white man with me that will just cancel that out uh, for you and it will give us an opportunity to redeem ourselves and to project and disassemble these, these systems that don't promote equity, don't promote equality. We can actually get some work done. So I was telling Jermaine White uh, before we started this morning that I've been excited and Jermaine and Dr. Hobbs, they've seen me excited. I've never been this excited because the work that Mark and I are gonna do with this one period initiative around this country will help transform it. Great. So we see that our implicit biases can really be harmful in education and how we really need to step outside of the box and um, look beyond our personal um, beliefs. So to be mindful with that, let's talk about a little bit about engagement, um, how administrators can remove those barriers and actively seek out representative voices to share in equitable decision-making processes. Nobody's gonna go. So listen, I, I think you remember this slide that I said those closest to the problem always deserve a seat at the table to help solve those problems. I think that's how you, um, you don't have to seek people out, you, they, they show up. Um, when a principal leads uh, the culture, he or she must do so and shape the culture by communicating to those working with he or she um the worst behavior they're willing to tolerate that that shapes the culture of any school and so when you talk about engagement and equitable decision making that's a non-negotiable that if you work in this building with me uh, not for me but with me as the leader that everybody has a seat at the table and you know primarily for me the success uh, garnered over time was on the heels of students. Uh, students helped me manage the school. Students helped me run the school. And when teachers saw an example of that, they wanted to be a part of that, uh, that cycle as well. Um, equitable decision-making comes on the heels of the culture established by the leader of the school. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll weigh in. Um, I, I wanted to highlight what we did at Children's Hospital. Because even though I work in a hospital, what you do in your 
educational setting can mirror. It's 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 it can be exactly the same. And Miss um, Stephanie, I love what you said about us beginning first. In social work, we call it self-reflection as part of our generalist intervention model and our approach. So I was thumbs up to that. Um, so with the with the murder of George Floyd, it was it was a defining moment for, for much of our country. And I got a phone call uh, one night from a couple of colleagues who work at the hospital and they said, Mitzi, could you lead us in some discussion about what is happening and what happened with George Floyd? I said, of course, I thought it was going to be just me and a couple of colleagues sitting together at lunch or whatever, and that we were gonna have this conversation. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that led to my entire social work department having a major discussion um, with the support of my director. And I was, I was like blown away. And I thanked her for creating this space for us to have the discussion. Well, that led to probably within the last year since George Floyd, me having moderated conversations about equity and, uh, and social justice to residents, physicians, um, other colleagues, nurses. So the engagement took place, but it had to be a beginning with the support of people who were <clears throat> people that I was answering to, like my director. <clears throat> so it's, it's meant that people have had to hear some, some words and some language that I was willing to articulate. I was willing to break it down into feelings, anger, dismay, you know the feelings, but also some concepts like white privilege, slavery, implicit bias, and actually put it out there and to be able in thoughtful ways to have those discussions, being mindful that there's always a counter narrative. I'm okay with the counter narratives. You know, I am so okay with the counter narratives in the room because I think, like you said, Dr. Peters, we need all of that. I need all of those voices. So I'm, I'm pleased to report that now we are developing a diversity committee. Um, I'll be part of that committee. We are hiring consultants to help us understand, um, uh, to help us do the work that our administrators identify. You know what? I am not deficient. I just don't know. Cultural humility. I just don't know, but I'm willing to learn. So I'm excited. So I think engagement means you have to have some folks who are willing to not be silent and are willing to stand in their purpose. I figure this is my purpose, this is my assignment, and I will just, I'm willing to do the work um, and have tolerance for those who have not done the work, but they're willing to. All I need is one to show up. That's what I say, I don't need a lot, just one person to show up. So I think that's part of engagement is willing to have some folks who say, this is my assignment, this is my destiny, I'm willing to walk in it and engage others who will join me in, um, who will join me in that. So that's my thoughts on that. Natalie, one thing that um, 
it's so critical, like you asked, for us to be able to talk to the to the to to, to the to the children, to the teachers, to find out their thoughts. Um, as as Mitzi was talking, and thanks for your work, Mitzi. It's uh, it's great to hear that that you had an experience of expecting a handful and getting a lot, and um, that that always helps us. Um, I, I think one of our challenges in school is we are an impatient lot, the, the K-12 school people. This is not work for the impatient. This is work for the diligent. This is work for those who, as, as Dr. Peters said, are going to be able to embrace the failures, Mitzi, those steps back, those other voices to get moving forward. And one of the things I think that um, limits our growth in K-12 is we're always on the defensive. We're always on the defensive because the, there, there are forces outside of K-12 that seek to show the worst of us. Because of that, we often aren't able to, to really be on the offensive. And, and what I think that means is to really go after a particular thing, to really go after equity to really, this is gonna take a long time because as, as Dr. Peter said, our system is built to do what it does. And that is with, with the limited resources that we have, we can only, we, we, we count on 65% of our kids, Natalie, being in tier one, okay? And we talk about that all the time. You know what? The video that we're gonna see, it's gonna explain how we only have 5% of our kids in tier one. The, the truth is we've always made tier one an illusion because our kids have so many diverse needs. What has happened with this, this construct that 65% of our kids are in tier one and then we'll uh, increase our interventions up the pyramid, that's led us into a false belief, honestly, that we were doing work that we weren't doing. It's it's uh, does our schooling match up with our education as Stephen talks about. And as we reach this critical crux in terms of equity, I think all these pieces are coming together with um, not wanting school to just go back like it was. God forbid that we allow that to happen because it didn't work and it didn't work for those who needed it the most. And I believe that so much of what we see, we've seen during the pandemic if we can take that as an assessment, the pandemic, right? It, it's truly a, a formative assessment to show us where our needs are. Now, if we actually respond to those needs, we've done something good. My fear is that because we're always on the defensive, we always have to test scores and these appraisals, we have to respond to that. If we can get past that and get into the real value of every child every child is 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 equally important and when we can bring them all together that when they begin to cheer for each other when they begin to enjoy each other's uh experience together those are things that make it easier for us um we're really at a crux and equity is can be the driving force not just for us to tend to it but for it to be the banner that moves us forward into a greater day of education. 
Yeah, and oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Dr. Martinez. Oh, okay. Yeah, when I think about um, this question, I think about how are we focusing our direction as leaders, right? Um, how are we cultivating collaborative cultures within uh, our schools and within the community? How are we deepening our own learning and how are we securing accountability uh, amongst all of us? And who has access and information to all this, all this information at the school site, right? And who are we partnering with so that we can collaborate with and, and using those funds of knowledge throughout the entire system? Um, and, and, and who are we valuing, right? And, and we're also looking at policy and, and understanding is policy based off of, you know, positive things that happened 10, 20 years ago, or are they kind of outdated and we need to go back to that policy and really do a, a critical analysis of policy and procedures within our district. And um, who's gonna take account, who's gonna take account of that, right? And how are we gonna share that information? How are we gonna share some new strategies and new ways of developing new policy that's really, if we're talking about equity and, and social justice, then that's where we have to center it on them. We can't just say it. We have to center policy and all of these things around race equity and social justice thing, right? To be anti-racist. That's where we're headed towards, right? And so I think those are some of the four things is focus, direction, cultivating collaborative cultures, deepening our learning, securing accountability, who has access, who has information, and then also focusing our attention on equity and policy and what actually uh, disenfranchises people or youth and, and communities around this policy, right? So I'll stop. That, that's kind of my, my spill on leadership a bit. I love that. I would, I would just add, um, because I spend a lot of my days working with faculty and staff right now that I don't wanna leave the educators out and I consider myself to be an educator. So I uh, have a lot of friends that are, that are truly as difficult as COVID has been, I've also heard them say things like, I'm a better teacher right now. I'm, I'm living my best life from home. And, and that is because we, we have to not only interrogate the culture and the environment for the students, but how is it set up for our teachers to succeed, for them to thrive? The extent to which some of my friends are not experiencing microaggressions because they're in their home where they feel safe, where they can be their best self, unapologetically their most authentic self without being in an environment with other teachers who haven't done their work, who are asking questions that they don't even realize or perpetuating behaviors that they're unfamiliar that are hurtful for my friends that are teachers in order for them to bring their best self to be able to impact their students. So this environment that we're talking about and creating equity, I don't want to leave them out because if I am succeeding at home right now amidst COVID, I want to be able to port that success back to the classroom when I'm able to be in there more than just a certain percentage of time or for some folks, not at all. So how do we make this shift so that everyone is able to thrive and flourish um, in an equitable manner? Yeah, yeah. And, and to piggyback on, on the 
from the educator on the school counselor and the school psychologist and the nurse and the social workers and what kind of supports and systems are we going to put in place especially if we're talking about wellness and health and mental health and wellness and the transition of these youth as well as transition of ourselves and our teachers back into the community which is the school how are we going to make sure that they are supported that they have the right resources that they have the 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 um the skills and techniques so that they can confront these inequalities and these injustices around this, you know, discrimination around, um, you know, health outcomes. Uh, so, so there's so many things that we can start thinking about now so that when we start transitioning back into the schoolhouse that we're off and running and not sitting and catching and waiting. Um, we're, we're upstream, not downstream. Right. Um, so I think those are some of the things that we have to think about when we really start thinking about our transitioning back into the classroom and into the schoolhouse. Thank you. Even now, when we talk about mental health, you know, we had a video to play about mental health. And, and if we're going to be equitable, we have to make sure that our students' social well being is taken care of as well. And so, thinking about the video, and we can't play it, but the panelists have watched it and they are, um, they know about it. Um, how do we involve school communities to understand the significance of mental health? How can we assist our students even in the remote learning um, environment that we're in? You know, some in our district, you know, some students are in class face to face and some are home. Um, and so, how can you, as student support services or educators or stakeholders, just touch and reach out to each student during such a time like this um, where suicide rates are up? <laughs> you know. People are depressed. I mean, it's it's touching home for everyone, including myself. I mean, I had a moment. My children are having a moment. Moment, and so, how can we um, help our educators with that? Yeah, I, I, I I'm sorry, Dr. Glass. I'll, I'll I'll be quiet. I think it's the, the training of everybody. So if if when I say training, I say PD. I think if it comes to mental health and wellness, I think we talk about, you know, cell programming and only a couple of groups of people get that training and not everybody follows the, the, the whole curriculum across the entire schoolhouse. I think that's one way of really leveraging an opportunity between teachers, counselors, school counselors, school psychologists and social workers and nurses about making sure they have the same language. So when a kid is dysregulated, how and what techniques can we use for this kid to help them um, you uh, transition from a, 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 out, a outburst, right? So that when they the teacher is taking them or guiding them to the, not guiding them, but taking them or sending them to the school counseling office, they've already done a, a tier wish kind of one intervention in the classroom then move them into a tier two, which is a school counselor to a tier three, maybe a social worker, a school psychologist, right? So what kind of skills and techniques can you use and across the entire school schoolhouse so that everybody is doing the same thing so that they're treating the kids um, in, a, in a way that, that's, that's beneficial and it's not falling on just one person, right? Or a small group of people. So I think I go back to 
uh, my time in uh, juvenile justice care, right? We started in LA, we started closing down our detention centers and rebuilding them. We started training everybody in dialectical behavioral therapies and, and skills training from the groundskeeper all the way up to the, the director so that when something happened in the yard, that groundskeeper could actually utilize those skills and techniques with that kid that was having a moment so that when they passed them on to the next person, it was the next level of care and it was the next level of care. I think we, we, I think that's one place that we could possibly really have a good kind of you know, shift the needle a little bit in how do we make sure that everybody is doing and following the same evidence-based practices that are culturally informed as well as um, beneficial. So that, that's one way. I think we need to be careful to um, adopt what we hear often best practices. Who, who said that? Who, who said it? I, I think oftentimes in education, um, having been a superintendent where we had students die by suicide two weeks before graduation and have double digit numbers of suicides in the same school year, um, I came to realize that um, best practice stops our search for better practice. And so as we engage in this dialogue, which you can see by the 30 minutes we've been on, this is a conversation that needs to continue. It, we can't have drive-by speeches and drive-by conversations. I won't even contract to do them anymore. It has to be ongoing, it has to be a continuous process. And so when you marry or merge the clinical aspect of what these professionals do on a daily basis, with the practical application of what we do in education, uh, that's a good marriage. And, and good marriages um, survive and thrive on communication and constant dialogue. And I think that's the beginning uh, not the end. This is Stephanie. I would add, and when we're creating these spaces, just giving, like we do in education, multiple intelligences, different ways for people to be able to process information. Some folks are going to be talkers. Some are more reflectors, and then they respond. Um, I have some colleagues that just acknowledge the um, World Day of AIDS, and then they did another program where they acknowledged individuals that have been murdered um, because of them being and identifying as transgender. And they sent a toolkit. And some people, you, they offered you the ability to write words or to speak or to plant a tree. There were all different ways to reflect and express themselves, but they weren't limited in one particular way. So it allowed for whatever way you wanted to connect to be honored. And I think as we as we do that, that allows everyone to have an ability to plug in and it's not just having to conform to one way because we all process and respond differently. Yeah, yeah this is Mitzi. Um, I, I would also add um, just, you know, because I'm, again, I work in a hospital, the, the suicide, the attempted suicide rate is I don't even have any words to describe how the increase 
of actual suicide attempts that have happened, um, you know, that interface through our emergency room at the hospital. And then I see children who come into the clinic who may not have had, you know, a suicide attempt, but we do something called a, um, a, a patient health questionnaire where we're screening for depression. And then we're also screening for anxiety. So again, the rates have just, have just skyrocketed. And then I'm, I'm also a therapist. So I see kids in therapy also. So I'm seeing these touch points and interfacing with children who are, um, who are struggling with depression and anxiety. So my, my first piece would be just to give what I call give meaning that the trauma exists. So there would be those out there who would argue and who said to me, well, what's wrong with them? Why, you know, what's the, what's the big deal? What's happening? Well, it is happening. So really to give meaning to that, that our children are struggling, but the parents are struggling equally as well. So often I think about just some practical things that teachers can do, just like I do in my clinic, is to actually say, how are you doing today? Tell me what's happening. I mean, that's something everybody can do. You don't have to have, you know, any great skills to do that. You have to feel comfortable in that space and feel like you can give yourself permission to not gloss over the fact that your student might be struggling and to be able to tune in, to tune into the student who maybe doesn't want to cut their Zoom on because their home may not look the same as somebody else's home or their mom may have worked last night and she can't help that student and what that may feel like for that mother as well as that student. So to me, those are all areas of mental health that I try to tune in. But again, to say, how are you doing today? Before we even start class, I need to check in. I need to check in with, with my, my students, um, I check in with my patients. I think um, we can check in with students in the same way. Those are just some practical things um, that people sometimes can feel comfortable at doing. And then having some resources available to say, if you're struggling, if you're feeling like you want to hurt harm, it's still hard for me after all these years to say kill yourself or, but hurt harm yourself or do something that you're not feeling safe. That's the language I'll use. You're not feeling safe. Here's what you can do. A teacher can incorporate that in a Zoom meeting, check in. So that's, I mean, I have a whole lot of other things, but just being able to check in and again, um, engage your families and your students in that, in that way. I would add just real briefly, Natalie, um, what Dr. Martinez was talking about earlier about preparing for beyond COVID. I like to think of it more at least a renewal or maybe a rebuild um, than a return because I hope we can do those things. And, and what Dr. Helms Pickett said, it, 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 it hurts so much. I know it's true, but for some of our teachers to be absent of those microaggressions at home, it's hard. I mean, this is hard teaching online. And for some of our teachers to, to think, yeah, this is hard, but at least I'm not having to deal with this. Now you multiply that times all of those kids who are feeling the same way. And that to me, 
that lines out what our priority ought to be moving forward. I, I think the question, Natalie, about um, mental health and social emotional needs, here's the question we have to ask ourselves and be very truthful in answering. Is that going to be a priority? Has it been a priority? I don't think it has been. I think for the last 20 years, test scores have been the priority. I think one of the biggest challenges we have is to get teachers to believe us when we say that they're not. Because I worked with a school board a few years ago and their school board said, we don't care about test scores anymore. We want our kids to be healthy and happy and individually successful academically. And I worked with that school system to try to help them with their teachers. Y'all, the teachers could not comprehend because the question I asked was, how do we show our work in the absence of test scores? Y'all, they, could they, they, they couldn't come up with the answer to that because they, we, and look, we've all been a part of this because we, we have, but they're, they're, they've been trained <laughs> to think this is what matters. Well, I think one of the things, and, and Mitzi, I, I think part of our work would be for people to hear your stories and for people to be able to see things through your lens of, of the reality of, because of, of, here's the question, is school, is school more of a stressor or is it a stress reliever? And that ought to be a fundamental question for us. Um, and I think when people can see the need, what should our priority be when we return from, from, from this? I think that's a challenge for us, Natalie. Um, Dr. Wilson, it, school is a huge stressor. I, it is a huge stressor. I have students who, if I did not, and I'll say to them, if it wasn't for school, how would you be feeling? I'd be feeling a lot better. Or they'll say, or the question may be, how were you doing before COVID? Before COVID, they were fine. COVID came, the isolation, um, and, and the school piece has been huge um, without having a lot of um, feeling like that there's not a lot of, of resources to help them. And I can't ignore their parents. The parents are struggling along with their students. I mean, yes, who are struggling along with their children. So school is a huge stressor for our, our students. And, and I put in the chat that I think COVID has got to be an opportunity for us to reset, re-examine, and re-evaluate how we, our service delivery models. That's for me as a social worker, that's for you as educators. I can't do things the same way. I have to listen differently. I have to tune in in a way that I did not have to tune in before. I have to hold myself to a higher standard and be accountable in ways um, because it's hard to see kids and their parents struggle. It's so hard. And I, and I, I, I agree. I, I think that question for K-12 people, now how do, we, how do we not make it be that stressor? Because for a lot of kids, it is the stress relief. But it's not, it's, as, as Stephen said, it's not one size fits all. It's, um, it's, it's being able to try to find their needs and be able to match up with them. I, um, I think one of the things that I've been talking to superintendents and, and central office people about is the need to have a robust virtual plan uh, moving forward because 
who who really wants to send their middle schooler back to school again? I mean, you know, I, I like middle school, but in jest, there are a lot of things that that there there are a lot of people who are going to want if they are able and have the resources at home to do so. They're going to want to keep their kids there. I think that's part of our response to this as well. And how do we connect those kids right to keep them from being? Uh, separated socially from those skills that, that they gain. So we got a lot of work to do, y'all. <laughs> yeah, lastly, for me, I believe, as I said earlier, that we're asking educators to perform miracles daily. Um, and the, the weight that they feel uh, to be able to do that uh, is great. And we need to be mindful of their uh, self-care. And it's not just teachers, it's superintendents, it's principals, it's assistant principals, it's counselors, it's student support services, everybody involved in what's happening here. But what we fail to realize is COVID, the COVID pandemic um, is a manifestation of a broken system. Um, we were not only not prepared, uh, we didn't do our work up front to be able to deliver systems and pathways to students. Um, but I believe that we've responded, those teachers and principals and assistant principals and support staff around our country have done an excellent job. Uh, a resource that I want to give to people, I'll put it in the chat box, is the Gates Foundation um, funded a project that I was an advisor on out of New York. Uh, in the past eight months, it's FHI 360. The hashtag is connectedandengage.fhi360.org. It's a comprehensive package of studying what people around our country are doing uh, to deliver high quality education during the pandemic. And I'll put that in the chat box. I, I'm glad I remembered to put that resource out to you all but it covers everything from curriculum to teaching and learning to socio-emotional learning to special ed delivery and inclusiveness to family engagement which is the critical piece because a child educated only at school is an uneducated child 